0: USA Today once ran an article about the 10 most difficult things to do in sports. Interesting article. I guess number, I'm going to give you the the top five, okay? Top five most difficult things to do in sports. Okay, starting from the bottom up. Number five. Number five was returning a professional tennis serve. Any of you play tennis? Number four. Number four was hitting a golf ball long and straight, even though it's just sitting there on the tee. Number three was pole vaulting over 15 feet. Okay, remember, these are the five most difficult things to do in sports. Number two was driving a race car at mega speed without dying. Some of you guys do that on the bog road down here every (laughs) Sunday. What do you think the hardest feat in athletics is? The, the most difficult thing to do in sports. Anybody want to guess? The most difficult thing to do in sports, athletics, is hitting a professionally thrown baseball. Recently, I was reading something by an experience by a pastor on the West Coast. He said a few years ago, a friend of mine named Ned Coletti, who was vice president of the San Francisco Giants baseball team, asked if I would speak at a chapel service. He offered to let me take batting practice with John Yandel, the batting practice pitcher for Barry Bonds. I thought it would be a good chance to benchmark my athletic skills, he says. I never played organized ball but as a kid growing up we played on a vacant lot where the best pitcher around was a kid called Steve Snail and in fifth grade I could hit his pitches better than anyone else in the neighborhood, he said. There was only one other kid in the neighborhood and she was in first grade <laughs> but I was still the best, he said. He said I did pretty well against Snail so I thought well let's see how this goes. I had the batting cage in the at Park John wound up and let go, and I heard the sound of the ball hitting the net behind me. He's just not lobbing them in there. I thought, he wants to see if I can hit his best stuff. So John wound up again, and the second time I swung, the ball had already been in the net several seconds by the time my bat got over the plate. So I kept starting my swing a little earlier until eventually I'd begin my swing about the same time that I saw him start his windup. I hit several foul balls and a few dribblers that might have gone fair. I was feeling pretty good about myself, he said. And then he said, do you want me to put a little zip on one? (laughs) Those had been his lobs, he says. Sure, I said, it's been hard to time these slow balls. So he wound up and I never saw it coming. Never saw it. I asked him if this was his best pitch. (laughs) He said, no, you wouldn't want to see that. What level player would hit that well? I asked. He said a good high school player would crunch it, and a good college player would strike out a high schooler with his eyes closed. A minor league guy would throw shutouts to college guys, put a major league arm against a minor leaguer, and it's no contests. That day, he said, I learned that there is a vast chasm between Sandlot Baseball and Rockford, Illinois, and Major League Talent in San Francisco. He says, it's not just that I wasn't good. I didn't know enough to know how not good I was. A study done a few years ago showed that the first sign of incompetence is the inability to perceive incompetence. We deceive ourselves all the time, don't we? We deceive ourselves about our intelligence, We deceive ourselves about our talent. We deceive ourselves about our appearance. And nowhere does this inability to have an objective, accurate, reality-based view of ourselves show itself more than in the spiritual realm. When it comes to our sense of how well that we can handle temptations that Satan pitches to us, I don't think we know enough to know how not good we are. Right? Spiritually, I think most of us grade ourselves by the standard of the neighborhood sandlot where we can always find a first grader to outperform. But friends, Satan is not playing sandlot ball. He's a professional when it comes to throwing temptations our way. And a large percentage of the time, we never see those things coming until it's too late and that's the reason for this series we need some spring training right And we're heading into spring and what better place to get it than from the greatest trainer who ever lived Jesus Christ last week we began by looking at the way that the tempter strategically and seductively approached Jesus and how Jesus easily handled every pitch that was thrown him I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 4 again if you would Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 is where we we started out last week, where we're going to be a little bit today. Let me just read through the passage really quickly here. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone.'" Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now the first thing we learned about last week about the devil's tactics was, first, his timing is selective. You remember what we pointed out here, that first he attacked Jesus in the midst of a powerful spiritual experience, he was just baptized, and beginning his ministry. So he attacked in the midst of beginning a great personal endeavor. And then he attacked Jesus in the midst of great physical and emotional exhaustion. Remember, after 40 days and 40 nights, it says, he then became hungry. So his timing is selective. Secondly, we learned that his tactics are systematic. Remember, we we kind of narrowed it down to three different things that he used here, illustrated in this text, that number one, he tempts us to depart from the will of God. He tempts us to doubt the word of God. And he tempts us to divert our worship from God. Those are the three areas that were dealt with here. And then Jesus saw right through his cunning strategy. He knew that Satan's price is always higher than he leads us to believe. Is that right? He knew that his promises are always less than he delivers. Satan was playing hardball with Jesus here, and Jesus knew it. He was seeking to eat Jesus alive. Do you get that? Do you get that in your life? That the devil is playing hardball? He's not just pussyfooting around with us? 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be careful. Watch out for the attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. He's out to eat you alive. His seductions are strategic. His timing is selective and his tactics are systematic. But before we can move on, I think we need to go a little bit deeper in this text and identify a couple more things. And it's this, first of all, that his temptations are very specific. They're very specific not only are the devil's seductions strategically timed and systematically pitched but they are specifically placed specifically placed basically in the scriptures we find that there are three specific channels through which satan predominantly attacks us in this world and through which he can get a very strong foothold upon us if we understand what those channels are and remain alert to how susceptible you and I are to them, I think we can then know where to look ahead of time and how to withstand those attacks. Is that right? Makes sense, right? First John chapter 2.16 ought to really crystallize this for us. The words of this text, seen through the lens of a few different versions, I think will give us the picture in high definition. Let me read to you, 1 John 2, 14 through 16, out of the message. I remind you, my dear, dear children, John writes, your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. You veterans were in on the ground floor, and you know the one who started all this. You newcomers have won a big victory over the evil one. And a second reminder, dear children, you know the Father from personal experience. You veterans know the one who started it all and you newcomers, such vitality and strength you have. God's word is so steady in you. Your fellowship with God enables you to gain a victory over the evil one. Don't love this world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out, but whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. This is the way the New American Standard puts it. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. We know that we are of God, John later writes in chapter 5, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, there are three channels here on the screen behind me that stand out very clearly that this verse points out. He tempts us through the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Is that right? Let's deal with the first two because they're so similar, first of all. He tempts us through the lust of our flesh and through the lust of our eyes. This may become, says one pastor, so habitual that we don't even notice it. I'll give you an example. In a restaurant, an attractive waitress walks past a husband and a wife sitting at a table. The husband starts staring at her. Can't take his eyes off her. He's not thinking of this woman as a person, as someone's sister or daughter. She is just body parts to him. And he thinks nobody notices. But of course, someone notices. And his wife feels humiliated. This is the look that Jesus talked about when he spoke of committing adultery in your heart. This does not mean that noticing someone attractive is sinful. The sense of attraction is a good thing. Rather, Jesus warns about looking for the purpose of lusting. An element of will has come into the look. And the husband is allowing his mind to wallow in it. It may have become so habitual that he is hardly even aware that he's doing it. Now right now about all of us are probably asking the question want to know the same thing. What does lust really mean? What does it mean? Well actually it's the same word in the scripture that is translated covet in other places in the Bible. The word simply means to earnestly desire something Now, let me ask you a question. Is every desire that you have wrong? Is every earnest desire that you have wrong? No. God created us with desires and passionate ones at that. The word for covet or lust literally means to be pleasant. It connotes delighting in something. Both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the words for covet can actually describe an action towards something pleasantly desirable. The same word, however, depending on the context in which it's used, can be used to describe an illicit, ungoverned, selfish desire or lust. For example, I just... Pointed out one to you. Jesus said that it is a sin to look on a woman to lust for her in Matthew chapter 5. Yet in Luke chapter 22, Jesus emphatically used the same exact Greek word of his own intense desire to eat the Passover with his disciples. Same word. Clearly, it is not desire in and of itself that is wrong. It is the way in which we desire something. God created us with a desire to love, to excel, to succeed, to produce, to accomplish, to learn, and to discover things. He gave us certain physical and sexual, emotional and spiritual desires, but if those desires become perverted or cross the lines and limitations that God has set for what is morally right, then they become illicit, immoral desires, they become obsessive desires, they become... Lust, what the scripture terms, which brings then about sin. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Death. Now you can use anything you like For an example, a beautiful woman, a good-looking man, a new car, a great-paying job, an enviable friendship. You fill in the blank, and this is how it looks. This is how it works. You see something, you like something, you desire it. You begin to tell yourself you have to have it, that you can't live without it. You determine then to get it at any cost. Now you've crossed the line into covetousness and the rest of the scenario at that point is a runaway train. The first step in addressing the significance of Satan's attempt to utilize the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes in getting us to sin is to understand what it is. And secondly, we need to know what it does. It should not come as any surprise to any of us, that the 10th commandment in Exodus 20 deals specifically with coveting. Same word for lust, right? Every breach of the first nine commandments is rooted in this selfish desire or covetousness. Go through them and test them out. Idolatry, worshiping images, blaspheming the Lord's name, refusing to rest in obedience to God, disrespect for parents, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, every single one of those commandments has as its root the sin of covetousness. Stuart Briscoe brings it painfully home to us when he says that covetousness means worshiping desire, committing my life to the fulfillment of my wants. In that definition, we discover the reason that Satan wants to trip Jesus up with it. It breaks the two greatest commandments. You know what the two greatest commandments are? Yeah, that's right. And how does lust break the two greatest commandments or covetousness? Because our desire is put first, we cannot love God with all of our being. And by committing our lives to the fulfillment of our wants, we cannot love our neighbor. Life becomes then a whirlwind of greed, which revolves completely around me. Covetousness, in the Apostle Paul's words, ultimately amounts to idolatry. Colossians 3.5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry for all that is in the world john said the desire of the flesh the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the father but is from the world and so we need to stop then forming our viewpoint or our world view From what we see and hear through the media and through our culture. Do you know how hard that is to do? Really. Studies have been done and show that anywhere from 500 to 3,000, we're exposed to anywhere from 500 to 3,000 advertisements daily. Daily. The general message in this merchandising is that all of our problems can be solved immediately by the consumption of the proper product. Is that right? It's true. The fact is, though, I found the real answer to my world of unhappiness in the wee hours of a Friday morning, December 24th in 1982, in my in-law's living room in Massachusetts. That was the night that I received Jesus Christ's offer of forgiveness, peace, and eternal life. And that was the answer to my unhappiness and emptiness. It wasn't anything that I could buy or consume or purchase. The Christian community needs to stop being squeezed into the world's mold and instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds, says Romans 12, so that we know what really is the truth. Believe what God says you need. And the first thing you need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the problem is not your TV. The problem is not the culture. The problem is not even Satan. Jesus identified what the problem is. In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 22, Jesus said, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. There's that unholy trinity again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And where does it come from? Out of the heart. Out of the heart. So now don't tell me that secular marketing strategies aren't spiritual. They are. And let me tell you something. The church is blind to the fact because if you look in any Christian magazine, Christian television, contemporary Christian music albums, you name it, they're buying into the same marketing strategies, same slogans, You see, marketing strategies aren't are spiritual because they take advantage of our spiritual emptiness and our natural affinity for coveting. We all covet, don't we? We're all guilty. The problem's in here. It's in our hearts, and Satan knows it, and he uses it to his advantage. Now here is the grand difference between the temptation of Christ in the wilderness and Satan's strategic seduction with us. Have you ever thought of that? The difference? Jesus was pure. He was sinless. He didn't have a sin nature. Satan tempts us through all the same avenues that he used with Jesus, but he is also keenly aware that because of our sin nature, we are already disposed to these weaknesses already. And marketing campaigns understand and capitalize on this principle. They appeal to our base nature, our insatiable craving. But God will never lead us to manage a desire in a sinful way. If I want to walk down a wrong road, you know what? I must, have to, I, I must begin by silencing God's divine voice within me, if, you're, if I'm a Christian, right? I, I must be careful not to pray about this desire with a submitted spirit. I must make sure I don't talk about this desire with wise friends who would hold me accountable. I must make sure I don't look carefully at passages of scripture on the subject and reflect on them. I must do all these things without recognizing I'm doing them. I must keep myself in a state of spiritual and mental vagueness when it comes to God, don't we? And we work hard at that. Temptation, one author recently wrote, promises that we can be free to gratify our appetites as much as we want. Temptation promises freedom, but it makes us a slave. There is always a hook. Real freedom is not the external freedom to gratify every appetite. It is the internal freedom not to be enslaved by our appetites. To have a place to stand so that we're not mastered by them. The devil tempts us through the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and he tempts us through the pride of life, it says in John 2.16. Now, here's something that you and I know intuitively, yet we fail to realize it practically. Listen to this statement now. We do not get tempted by that which repulses us. Is that right? Obvious, right? But we walk right into stuff all the time. And we miss the way that Satan is dealing with us. We don't have to worry about the thing that repulses us. The thing we have to worry about is the thing that attracts us. We continually fall into the same sins in the same areas time after time after time after time, and we do not figure out how to correct it. But here's the deal, and Satan really banks on this. Like a signature or fingerprint, you and I have a sin pattern, a susceptibility to temptation that is unique to you. Following me? And so do I. Author Michael Mangus refers to them as signature sins. Ever heard that phrase before? Signature sins. Furthermore, the pattern of your sin is directly related to, get this now, your gifts. Have you ever figured that out? The pattern of your sinfulness is directly related to your gifts. Furthermore, the pattern of your sin is related to your passions as well as your gifts. And our gifts and passions will also clue us into our areas of greatest vulnerability and make us more alert to where Satan might attack. Now, using this baseball motif again that I started with, home run hitters whose gift is in their swing also tend to strike out a lot. Don't they? In other words, you can be your own worst problem. And I can be my own worst problem. Because there is this relationship between the best version of you that God created and the worst version of you that Satan wants to bring out. You know what the common element there is? You. And Satan capitalizes on this. Commentator William Barclay warns that we must always remember that again and again we are tempted through our gifts. The person who is gifted with charm will be tempted to use that charm to get away with anything. The person who is gifted with the power of words will be tempted to use his command of words to produce glib excuses to justify his own conduct. The person with a vivid and sensitive imagination will undergo agonies of temptation that a more stolid person would never experience. A person with great gifts of mind will be tempted to use these gifts for himself and not for others, to become the master and not the servant of men and women. It is the grim fact of temptation that it is just where we are strongest that we must be forever on the watch. Good advice. Again, Michael Mangus identifies a handful of patterns that may help us. Maybe you can detect yourself in some of these examples that I'm about to give. I'll give you just a little sketch of some of these patterns. He identifies the first group as reformers. Reformers have a deep love of perfection and a high standard of excellence. That's good, right? But they wrestle with perfectionism and self-righteousness and will be tempted to judge others whose standards are not so high. Another group are servers. You might fall into that category. Servers love to be needed. Great caregivers. But underneath their servanthood may lurk low self-esteem that demands to be fed but can never get filled up. The temptation for a server is that their giving can become a subtle form of taking. You might be an achiever You love to conquer challenges and perform before others. Your temptation is to live for your image and turn what looks like serving God into serving yourself. Maybe you're an artist. We have a lot of those in the church, specifically this church. Artists love beauty and carry a strong desire to be unique. But in their need to stand out, they are tempted to look down on ordinary people. Maybe you're a thinker and you crave knowledge and like to know. You like to know everything. But the temptation sometimes is to like being right more than you love people. Knowledge puffs up, the Bible says. Tell you what, it's no fun to argue with a thinker unless you are one. Then you live for it. Enthusiasts, they're wired to be the life of the party, but they're tempted to make life revolve around themselves and become miserable if they feel they're not getting enough attention. Commanders, commanders understand power and leadership. They are drawn toward it, but the temptation is that power can become an end in itself and a commander can get frustrated when he or she doesn't get their way. One more category. Find yourself yet in any of these? Probably found your spouse in some of these, right? <laughs> peacemakers. Now you think, peacemakers? Well, how could that be bad? Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall, you know, see God. Peacemakers have a love for tranquility and serenity and relational harmony. They like it when life is comfortable and calm. In their redeemed state, they bring reconciliation to friendships and families and complete communities, which is central to God's character. But peacemakers can be tempted to seek peace at any cost and compromise the truth. You see, Satan knows exactly which buttons to push to turn our best selves into our worst nightmares. Be alert to his schemes. Identify your gifts. Because he tempts us through them. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Examples of all of these avenues of Satan's attacks emerge from the pages of Scripture. I mean, you can't turn a page without finding an example of it. And we need to look at the track record a little bit closer. Think about it. Adam and Eve, because they desired the fruit of the tree, which God forbade them to eat from, They acted on it and spiritual and physical death came into the world. Achan in Joshua chapter 7, his covetousness resulted not only in his death, but the death of his family and many of his countrymen. You know how his pattern emerged? He saw, he coveted, he took, he tried to cover it up, and he was found out. Ahab, 2,800 years ago, he desired Naboth's vineyard to the point where he wouldn't even eat. He couldn't eat because he wanted it so bad. His wife Jezebel added to the sin by killing Naboth. The result, Ahab was judged and destroyed by the Lord. David desired Bathsheba, and you all know that story. He coveted, he sinned, he tried to camouflage it, he murdered, he married, and he paid for the rest of his life. Israel desired the fleeting pleasures of Egypt over the gracious providence of God and they perished in the desert. A whole generation of them. See, the examples are way too many to ignore. And the New Testament has its own list as well. Judas Iscariot, Ananias and Sapphira, Simon the magician of Acts chapter 8, the false teachers of the first century who were greedy for power, prestige, and popularity. Right on up till today, all of them thought they could beat the system. None of them did. No one ever gets away with this. Ever. St. Augustine, I believe, who said, he made the enigmatic observation that sin is the punishment of sin. But remember this, temptation is not sin. Sin is the result of the wrong response to temptation. Again, James chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15 say, But people are tempted when they are drawn away and trapped by their own evil desires. Then their evil desires conceive and give birth to sin, and and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. You know what the solution to all of this is? Life in Christ. That's the simple solution. It's not simplistic. But it is simple to identify. The cure is allowing His Holy Spirit to guide us and our desires. The answer is to follow the Spirit's leadership. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10.13, which I referenced last week, it said that no temptation is common to man. The things that you undergo, everybody undergoes. But the end of that verse says that God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Here's the way of escape. It's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says, what I say is this. Let the Spirit direct your lives, and you will not satisfy the desires of the human nature. That's it. That's the way of escape. It's only through a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and a willingness to follow His Spirit that we can escape the grip of the devil. Satan's seductions are very strategic, but they can be surmounted. In Matthew chapter 4 again, Jesus shows exactly how. And the most promising thing we need to see in this passage is that the devil's threats can be silenced. Amen? they can be silenced. I'd like you to look at Matthew 4 and verse 11. The result of this whole temptation scene. It says, Then the devil, what? Left him, departed from him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So how do we deal with the devil when he does attack? Well, let me give you a few ways in which he's silenced really quickly. First, we need to understand that they are not silenced by running away from him. Did you get that? The Bible tells us to flee from certain things. Okay? Let me give them to you. In the New Testament, there are just a couple, a few, a handful. The Bible tells us to flee from idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10.14. Flee from immorality in 1 Corinthians 6.18 flee from youthful lusts in 1st Timothy chapter 6 verse 11 and flee from the love of money 2nd 2 Timothy 2:22 2, those are the things the bible the new testament tells us to flee from but the bible never tells us to flee from the devil the way to silence his threats is to stand firm in our faith against him we must resist him the scripture says. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9 says, but resist him firm in your faith. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Just like what Jesus did here. Notice the key there in James chapter 4, verse 7. Submission to God. That's the prerequisite. If you forget submission to God, you're in big trouble because you are no match for the devil. You must submit, therefore, to God first, then resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The three things that will silence the threats of the devil as we submit ourselves to God. The scriptures, the spirit, and Jesus the Son. The prayers of Jesus. His threats are silenced by the word of the scriptures. In this passage in Matthew 4, every time that Jesus addressed the devil, temptations, what did he say? It is written. And he quoted scripture. It is written, it is written, it is written. And you know what happened? Verse 11, then the devil left him. And the angels came. See, there's strengthening that, that follows the resistance when we stand firm. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, which we're going to deal with next week, encourages us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's part of our armor. Secondly, his threats are silenced by the power of the Spirit. Now, you and I cannot fight the battle apart from the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We must submit to His control. And you know what what is key in that regard? Prayer. Prayer is key there. Ephesians chapter 6, 18, again, we'll deal with this in detail next time. But the culmination of all our protective armor against the devil ends with the power of prayer in the Holy Spirit. That verse says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Prayer. Satan hates it when we pray. But the most important thing to remember when standing firm against the devil is that his threats are silenced by the prayers of the Savior. The prayers of the Son. See, Satan's deceptive. He's determined, but he's also defeated. Amen? He's defeated. Christ triumphed over him on the cross. And not only that, but he's always with us and will never forsake us, Jesus said. We need to be confident of that as we stand firm. Remember the verse we began with last week, Luke 22 and verse 31? Let's look at that again real quick. I want to point something out to you. Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus is telling Peter what's going to happen to him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. What does verse 32 say? But I have what? Prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is the foundation of our victory right here. Jesus prays for us. You may say, well, he's saying he's going to pray for Peter, but Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says, therefore, he, Jesus, is able once and forever to save everyone who comes to God through him. He lives forever to plead with God on their behalf. Hebrews 7, 25, great verse to memorize. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So we must constantly live with this in view because it's our victory and we know that Satan's threats are silenced by the inspired scriptures, the indwelling spirit and the interceding son. But Luke, however, reminds us in his gospel of a parallel passage to Matthew 4 of one other thing, that even though Satan's threats can be silenced, he will never give up on us as long as we're alive on this earth. Luke chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him. But then it adds this on the end, Until an opportune time. He didn't leave him for good. There was another time. And I believe that time was in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. So I want to leave you with a couple of practical suggestions, very simple. Number one, don't be naive, don't be naive, expect the temptations. No one is immune from them, not even Jesus and especially not you and me. Number two, don't be blind, learn to detect the temptation, adopt a watchful attitude. Number three, don't fear. Stand firm in your faith against the temptation. Submit therefore to God and resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. But number four, probably the most important one, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Don't flirt with temptation. You can never take the killer instinct out of it and make it tame. You can't. So protect yourself. Protect yourself. And that's what we're going to be going into for the next couple of weeks. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 19, we're going to deal with the armor, the protective armor that God tells us to take up. Let me close with this interesting little excerpt. In West with the Night, an extraordinary autobiography about growing up in Africa. Beryl Markham tells the story of Paddy, a wild, solitary lion that adopted a neighbor's farm as his home. For a 12-mile radius, this oversized cat wandered through Elkington's field and pastures. His seeming friendliness and harmlessness, however, proved to be deceptive one day as young Beryl found out. Now I'm going to quote from him the book. He writes, I was within twenty yards of the Elkington Lion before I saw him. He lay sprawled in the morning sun, huge, black-maned, and gleaming with life. His tail moved slowly, stroking the rough grass like a knotted rope end. His body was sleek and easy, making a mold where he lay, a cool mold that would be there when he had gone. He was not asleep, he was only idle. He was rusty, red, and soft like a strokable cat. I stopped and he lifted his head with magnificent ease and stared at me out of yellow eyes. I remembered the rules that one remembers. I did not run. I walked very slowly and I began to sing a defiant song. I went in a straight line past Patty when I sang it, seeing his eyes shine in the thick grass, watching his tail beat time to the meter of my ditty. Singing it still, I took up my trot toward the rim of the low hill, which might, if I were lucky, have Cape gooseberry bushes on its slopes. The country was gray-green and dry, and the sun lay on it closely, making the ground hot under my bare feet. There was no sound and no wind. Even Patty made no sound, coming swiftly behind me. What I remember most clearly of the moment that followed are three things. A scream that was barely a whisper, a blow that struck me to the ground, and Patty's teeth closed on the flesh of my leg. See, what happened to Barrow can happen to all of us at the crossroads of temptation. The lion we face there is also very silent and swift And its attacks can be just as deadly. But unlike the lion that left its scars on Barrow, our adversary is invisible and insidiously patient. He won't try to bring our whole life down in one fell swoop. Rather, he prefers to fall upon his prey in subtle ways, constantly weakening and wearing us down, blow by blow, little bite by little bite, and then he comes in for the easy kill. Let me ask you a question before we close today. What kind of little temptations are you dealing with in your life on a daily basis? Little temptations that are trying to nibble their way and nibble away your honesty and your integrity and your purity or some other area of your life. That's your crossroad of temptation. And you know, our fall isn't usually when we commit some sin that all the world sees. Long before that happens, the hidden places of our hearts are where the crossroad decisions are being made. And those are the decisions that ultimately shape our lives. So as James says, therefore, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you have been so clear in your word to us on how we can recognize the way that we are attacked on a daily basis through temptation, through the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the boastful pride of life. God, I pray that as we leave this place today that you'd make us aware and keenly sensitive to those areas of our lives in which we are tempted daily. And let us take up the sword of the Spirit, and pray and recognize that our hope and our life and our well-being is rooted and grounded in how close we walk to the Savior. Thank you for making that way possible, Lord Jesus. May we follow you today. It's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. Amen.